So the true national debt's not actually 30 trillion or even 90 trillion. He says it's much closer. You ready for this, Caleb? He says it's closer to $239 trillion. What does that mean? That means we would have to have $239 trillion sitting in a bank account today, earning treasury rates to be able to deliver on everything that we've promised that we can't afford to pay. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. David McKnight, welcome to The Better Wealth Show. Well, thanks for having me. I opened up when you first logged on as a, a little bit of gratitude. You have made a tremendous impact in my life. When I first got life licensed, I was given a couple books, yours being one of them. Read your book, you know, it was, it was good. And then I watched the documentary that came out and you made me a believer in why we do what we do. And I think that book documentary combination is, is incredible. And I'm just like, I've become a true believer of this concept of power of zero, understanding all the, all the teachings that you um, have been sharing for a very long time. And so what I would love to do is give a little bit of your backstory, who you are, what mission you're on, um, and then we can talk about things like life insurance, taxes, inflation, interest rates, um, and really try to get clear on like, if you are nearing retirement, if you are saving and are investing for retirement, what are some of the principles and what are some of the things that you need to know about now and in the future that can affect your, your money and your investments? Absolutely. Yeah. So when it comes to your backstory, you didn't come out of the womb being like, I'm going to share with people about how they can retire in a 0% tax bracket. So where did that come? Like, what is a little bit of your story from a standpoint of like who you are today and why you share this message? It's sort of interesting. I, I got into the industry in 1997, which was an interesting year to get into the industry because Bill Clinton stood before the nation during the um, State of the Union. He says, hey, I got some great news. The national deficit is simply zero. So we went from having no national deficit, which is different than the debt. There was some debt, but basically he was saying, hey, look, we balance the budget. And, and, and what the subtext of what he was saying was there shouldn't be any more debt in the future. We, we're, on, you know, we're on stable financial footing. But here we are in 2022, and that's less than 25 years later, we're at $30 trillion of debt. And so it's, you know, I got into the industry just right as like the calm before the storm. And um, by, by 2010, um, David Walker, who's a personal hero of mine, appeared on 60 Minutes and said, hey, look, I got some bad news. Tax rates have to double to keep our country solvent. So we, we went from, hey, things are awesome in the, in the course of about 12 years to, you know, we are on this cataclysmic crash course with, you know, a debt apocalypse. So right around 2010, I got acquainted with David Walker, former Comptroller General of the federal government, um, a lot of what his message was, his message was, look, um, because of unfunded obligations for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the predicted path of the national debt, and what we will be, uh, what we'll have to earmark just for the interest on all of that national debt is simply unsustainable. And so we're on this course that doesn't really add up. And so uh, around 2010, I started to really crisscross the country, raising the warning cry to people myself. I developed a presentation that involve three buckets, a taxable tax for tax-free, which basically says, look, there's three basic types of accounts within which you can invest money for retirement. And the first two are pretty problematic in a rising tax rate environment. You got the taxable bucket where every year you pay a tax, you've got tax deferred bucket where you don't pay the tax until the very end. But guess what? If tax rates down the road, like David Walker says, are likely to be dramatically higher than they are today, then it's not 
um, really smart to have the lion's share of your retirement savings locked up in the tax deferred bucket. And so I developed a presentation that talked about how to systematically reposition those dollars from taxable and tax deferred to tax free. So that by the time tax rates do inevitably rise, uh, you've done all the heavy lifting. You can then take those dollars out tax free. And so I built that presentation. I was asked by MDRT to, to, to present it at their worldwide annual meeting on two separate occasions. In 2014, I decided to write a book and the book was simply the book version of that whiteboard presentation that I've developed over the previous years. And I sort of threw it out on Amazon and self-published it, crossed my fingers, hoped for the best. And you know, people started buying the book. They started reading the book and it, it really sort of exceeded all my wildest expectations. And that sort of put me on the map. And then in 2019, of course, um, we, we did the book, the, the movie. And really one of my main motivations behind the movie, The Power of Zero, The Tax Train is Coming, was to really convince the skeptic about the future of tax rates. The person that says, Dave, I don't really believe you. I don't believe that tax rates in the future, even in the next 10 years, are likely to be dramatically higher than they are today. So what I wanted to do was crisscross the country and interview all of the most important experts in the nation on the national debt as it relates to the future of tax rates and say, hey, look, you know, forget what I think. What do you guys think about the national debt as it relates to the future of tax rates? And guess what? They're all reading the same music and they're all singing the same song. They're saying, if we don't change course as a country, that tax rates you know, within the next 10 years will have to grow up dramatically. Some of them even use the D word as it relates to the future of tax rates. Tax rates will have to double or we go broke as a country. So it, you know, I've, and I've read a couple of, uh, of different books as follow-up to The Power of Zero. Um, so, so that really is, is my story. And um, I've been in this industry for a long time, since 1997, our goal is in the next 10 years to put 100,000 people on the road to the 0% tax bracket. So that's really our mission. That's what we talk about. And, um, you know, I, I, I love what I do. So I'm curious now, are, do you still have people that argue with you or say like, oh, I don't, I don't see this happening? Cause if you look at history, if you look at our national debt, if you, isn't the unfunded liabilities 90 trillion and counting when you look at the, all the things that we're on the hook to pay, but we don't have the money for? Yeah. I mean, it depends on who you talk to. There's a, a very famous economist by the name of Dr. Larry Kotlikoff out of Boston University. He also takes up about 10 minutes in our documentary of very, very compelling stuff. He's the foremost expert in the world on what we call fiscal gap accounting. What he does is he projects out over the next 75 years, what we've promised to pay for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid interest on the national debt. He projects out over that same time period, what we can actually uh, afford to deliver under today's tax rates. And he says, look, if there's a difference between those two numbers, then your country has a fiscal gap and that's its true national debt. So the true national debt's not actually 30 trillion or even 90 trillion. He says it's much closer. You ready for this, Caleb? He says it's closer to $239 trillion. What does that mean? That means we would have to have $239 trillion sitting in a bank account today, earning treasury rates to be able to deliver on everything that we've promised that we can't afford to pay. So problem is much bigger and much more, I guess, poignant than what most experts are letting on when they're just looking at the $30 trillion of national debt. So yeah, it's a big problem. It's interesting to me because the people that I've talked to, majority of them, I haven't found someone that's like, will argue with me that taxes are going to to be lower. Um, even if you look at inflation, like inflation is a tax on everybody because you're, you're like making the same amount of money from a buying power standpoint, but it's putting you in 
the higher rates, but that's not even saying about them raising taxes. And we have politicians that are like, not even shy about it. They're like, this is what we want to do. And if they look at other countries, we're very much on the road there. Are people like, are people starting to come around or do you still have people that are arguing against it? And what do they have any validation of like, do they have any valid argument as it relates to why they believe that taxes? Well, let me, let me tell you a quick story to illustrate sort of what the wave is. So um, there's, there's a financial guru out there um, who has historically been almost the diametrical opposition to what I believe. And his name is the White Coat Investor. So he's actually, you know, you've heard of him. He's an emergency room doc out of Salt Lake City who found that he had a penchant for financial planning. And so that's basically what he does full time now. And um, he read The Power of Zero, you know, five years ago and basically said, it is crazy that Dave McKnight is recommending that people systematically reposition dollars to tax-free. Roth conversions are of the devil. You should never do it, you know? And, and I went back and forth with him. I said, look, if you look at the math, if you look at the fiscal trajectory of our country, tax rates have to go up by definition. They have to, or we go broke as a nation. He says, ah, now nah, we're just going to sort of inflate our way out of the problem. We'll go back to, you know, 70s style inflation. Well, about a year ago on Twitter, he was actually, this was right before Biden um, got elected. He says, look, if Joe Biden gets elected um, based on what his tax plan is, he goes, I'm going to, I'm going to convert my entire IRA all in one year, which by the way, is something I never recommend. Um, and so I, I, I tweeted, I responded to his tweet by saying, look, Hey, look, I, I'm glad to see you're coming around. <laughs> and so he blocked me. So the, the point is even my most, um, you know, dire opponents are, are starting to come around into our camp and say, look, we recognize, we could see the handwriting on the wall. We, the math doesn't lie. Tax rates are going to have to rise dramatically. So, so rarely will people contest what I'm saying about the future of tax rates. Will we disagree on, on, on how to best insulate ourselves from the future of tax rates? Sure. But hardly anybody disagrees. And mathematically, and let's take inflation out of it. So mathematically, if rates and thresholds stayed the same, and we didn't have inflation, it wouldn't matter, right? Like from a standpoint of taking a Roth or, or deferring or postponing for the future. The moment that a, a threshold or a rate or inflation increases the likelihood of tax, then you would be better paying tax on the seed, not on the harvest. And I think majority of people, even my very, I'll say very liberal friends that believe that taxes need to be increased, I think majority of people see that that has to be a uh, it has to be the game across the board, regardless if you believe that or not. Like if you look at it from a country, um, it, it's a very powerful argument. And I think- Yeah, th this is a completely politically neutral proposition here. I remember I was giving this workshop in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Um, remind me, are you from Wisconsin? I am, I am from Wisconsin, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I was in Fond du Lac and um, at, at the end of my workshop, it was two days before midterm elections and people came up to me and they said, Dave, 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 who should we vote for? Who should we vote for? And I never felt so politically powerful. And I said, you know what? It doesn't matter who you vote for because whoever gets elected is going to inherit a math problem. The solution to which involves either doubling taxes, reducing spending by half or some combination of the two. So, so really it doesn't matter what your political persuasion are because math, the math of our fiscal problems overrides everything. It, it yeah. overrides political partisanship. It overrides your political point of view. It overrides talking points. It is completely, um, you know, politic neutral. And, and that's the, the thing about our, our message. It should appeal to both sides of the aisle. It should appeal to politicians on both sides of the aisle. Yep. So I want to transfer into the next talking point, which is I think where a lot of people 
come at you is not the message that taxes are going to go up and we should be in a 0% tax bracket, but how you get there. You're a fan of Roth conversions. You're also a fan of life insurance. And I think that is like a trigger word, especially for our friend, uh, the white coat investor and others. It's like the fact that you use life insurance means you're a horrible human being and that you're a scam artist. So let's talk about that because again, you didn't come out of the womb saying, oh, life insurance is this amazing tool and we should convert into Roths. Why did you, why do you have this certain belief and how do you teach where life insurance should be used and how someone should look at that asset? Yeah, I don't, I don't look at life insurance as a silver bullet. I look at it as a complement to all of the other tax-free streams of income that are out there. I look at a strategy that contemplates multiple streams of tax-free income, none of which show up on the IRS's radar, but all of which contribute to you being in the 0% tax bracket. I want to take advantage of every nook and cranny in the IRS tax code. I think that if all you ever talk about is life insurance, you, you sort of look like a life insurance agent and nobody hands their life savings over to a life insurance agent. So I think it's important to, to give everything their fair shake. I think every stream of tax-free income has something unique about it and some sort of value proposition. I love Roth conversions, for example, because if you had a billion dollars in your IRA, you could shift every last dollar of it uh, to, you know, to your Roth IRA, no problem. So it could be a real workhorse in getting you to the 0% tax bracket. But the life insurance um, really does have some unique propositions. Number one, as you know, it's tax-free. Um, you know, the money accumulates tax-free. You can take the dis- you can take the money out tax-free by a combination of withdrawing the basis and then loans. Um, the money grows safely and productively. Um, you know, whether it's whole life or index universal life, whatever flavor you prefer. Uh, we're not trying to hit the money hit the ball out of the park here. We're looking for you know four to six percent net of fees over the life of the program, which means that it works as a great bond portfolio. You know, um, there was a guy, I I just did a YouTube video on this. A guy um, appeared on Twitter and he says, look, life insurance is not an investment. And then Tom Hegna responds and says, it's not an investment. It's a, you know, think of it in as a bond alternative, then it works. And then Tom proceeded to say, look, I put, I'm not an advisor. I don't make money off this stuff, but I I pay $225,000 per year into my life insurance. And it is the best, is it my stock portfolio? No, it's my bond portfolio. So we're not looking to make it the whole shooting match. It's just the bond portion of your portfolio. And you can get, you know, as Tom says, reach into your portfolio, take out your bonds, replace it with permanent life insurance. You'll increase your return, you'll lower your risk, you'll lower your standard deviation on your entire portfolio, and you'll receive, you'll have a better outcome over time. And so that's really um, one of the main ways it's a way to grow your money safely and productively. But the other way, and and this is what I really love about it, is it's a death benefit that also doubles as long-term care. A lot of our clients are between 50 and 67. And um, if you're between 50 and 67, I can guarantee that you, you know, if you're married, you have four of something. And I always like to ask those people, what is is it that people have four of? And uh, eventually we get around to the fact that they have four parents. And what is the likelihood that a, someone who's, say, 60 years old has one of those four parents that's going through a long-term care event even as they speak? And so a lot of people are saying, gosh, how do I solve this long-term care dilemma? It can wipe out my entire life savings. How do I do it without the heartburn associated with the traditional ways of mitigating long-term care risk, which is buying a long-term care policy? And one of the great things about permanent life insurance, particularly with the companies that allow you to receive your death benefit in advance of your death for the purpose of paying for long-term care is if you die peaceful in your sleep 30 years from now, 
never having needed long-term care, guess what? Someone's still getting the death benefit, probably your kids or your grandkids. So there isn't that sensation of having paid for something you hope you never have to use. So um, is it a silver bullet? No. Is it a panacea? No, but it can be a very, very effective complement to all of the other streams of tax-free income that you're doing, particularly if it's structured and funded properly. Yeah. I was, uh, when, when I first got into the industry, I was a big Dave Ramsey fan by term and invested difference. I want to talk to you about that in a second. One of the epiphanies that I had, and it was, it was quite frankly, a turnoff when I was getting into this space was people were like, oh, life insurance is a, <clears throat> is a sexy investment. It was better than your investments. And, and I'm like, well, if you're talking to a, a, an amazing entrepreneur, that's, that's a pretty big turnoff, quite frankly. And then when I started hearing the message of the and, or the multi-use of a life insurance policy when set up and used properly, and you articulated it so well, like it can do multiple jobs. And it's just, it's beautiful. And you think about it, like our cell phones, everyone that I know has a smartphone and it's not just a phone anymore. You can text, it's a flashlight. It woke me up this morning, it's a GPS. I can do emails, I can um, tweet and do all kinds of things. It gives me so much utility on that one device. Yeah, it's, it's over a thousand dollars, but it's so inexpensive when you think about all the jobs that it does. And maybe that's why everyone in America has a smartphone, essentially. And so it's just one of those things where it's, if we take a step back and talk about life insurance from uh, the utility and not the investment and not compare it to an investment using rate of return and look at the result, which I think is cash flow, which is maybe tax advantage cash flow, people would start looking at it differently instead of just saying like, this is a better than an investment. Anything that you want to say before we go on to I term and invest a difference? Yeah, I think it's just a question of how we position it. If we position it as... I tell people this all the time, the more you talk about Roth IRAs, the more your, your clients will be attracted to the idea of, of permanent life insurance. And, and the reason that is, is because permanent life insurance, if we hold it out as the, you know, like I said, the silver bullet, the panacea, I think people that have been reading Kipling, Kiplingers their, their, their entire life, Barron's Market Watch, they're going to be skeptical because they've always been told that life insurance is a scam. Dave, right there on, on, on Dave Ramsey's website, he says it's a ripoff, right? The only reason people do it is because they haven't researched it enough. So it's, it's for people that are easily duped and they're gullible. Well, guess what? I, I think that if we, you know, we're, we're up against significant headwinds. And so if we approach the marketing of this particular tool as it is the end-all be-all, and it should replace your stock market portfolio, and it should replace everything else that you're doing, that people are going to be inherently yep. skeptical. So we have to recognize what its limitations are, but we also have to you know, be good at positioning you know, what its strong points are. And, and I think that if we strike the right balance there, that people are going to recognize that it does have strong points, do things that some of these other streams of tax-free income can't do. It doesn't replace them, but it complements them. And so I, I think as long as we're approaching this with a comprehensive balance approach, that people that are, even people that are really you know, financially savvy are going to recognize the good that it can bring to their financial situation. So, so question for you and your, your philosophy, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's like, hey, be in the 0% tax bracket because I can't promise what the taxes are going to be if it's not in the 0%. So my question is, other than the Roth and permanent life insurance, what other buckets are there that should someone should look into? I mean, if you're in Chicago, you probably don't want to go into the municipal bond of, you know, yeah. that, so I don't know, but is there any other assets that should be on someone's radar to do research on? 
Yeah. So um, typically our clients were recommending anywhere between four and six different streams of tax re-income. So I'll go through them real quick one by one. You know, you got the Roth IRA. We we love the Roth IRA. You got the Roth 401k. It's great because you get a match, you get free money. Um, You've got the Roth conversion that can be the real workhorse in getting you to the 0% tax bracket. You got the LIRP, which is great because it's safe and productive. You get death benefit that doubles as long-term care. And if you can get your IRA down to the right amount, through Roth conversions and other shifting mechanisms, then guess what? Your RMD can be offset by your standard deduction. And um, if you can get your provisional income low enough, then your social security can also be tax-free. And so we've got six different streams of tax-free income. So, you know, when I approach somebody with six different streams of tax-free income versus saying, look, I've got one stream of tax-free income. And I know you've been told your whole life that it's of the devil and you know, it's a ripoff and it's a scam. When you're nestling that LIRP among multiple streams of tax-free income, you come across as being more balanced and more comprehensive. And people tend to hand their life savings over to someone who comes across as balanced yeah, and, and comprehensive. And, and it's also really smart to not have all your eggs in one basket. Um, one thing I want to go into, and we can we can talk unfiltered. I know that you're a big fan of Index Universal Life. I think that's another way of saying LERP. Uh, we do a lot of whole life, which might seem old and archaic, but we deal with a lot of entrepreneurs that want high liquidity, don't necessarily want a ton of variables and they borrow against it. But like I've had people on both sides of the aisle and I think it's really, really important to have the dialogue. Can you talk about when you would ever use whole life or are you just being polite and saying, I'm, I'll say whole life because I'm on, I'm on a show with Caleb, but like when, when is like, what are some of the pros and cons and in someone doing their research, whether they're a consumer or an advisor, what should they look into as it relates to this topic? Um, I, I know that people, I don't know if you're an advocate of, of, you know, infinite banking or not. I know that whole life and um, a particular type of whole life works really, really well with infinite banking. And when people need predictability and they need to um, know exactly what their cash value is going to be in a given year, then whole life can be very effective. It can be a great bond substitute, so on and so forth. I tend to like um, index universal life. I think you get get slightly higher returns. I also love the fact that to, to me, one of the most important provisions in the entire LIRP contract is the loan provision. And the one thing that I know about Index Universal Life is that there's some companies that guarantee a 0% loan provision. So all, as a rule, all LIRPs are tax-free, but they're not all cost-free. And where do life insurance companies make money on this? By charging you a net rate of interest for the loan when you take the money out. So what I'm looking for is I'm looking for a contract that's both both cost-free and tax-free. Um, and, and, you know, I, I wrote a book called Look Before You Lerp, where I, I show what are, what are the implications of having a loan that's not 0%. And so um, that said, there are contexts in which whole life is a superior product. And so I'm, I'm not here to um, knock that down or in any way denigrate whole life. I just think it just depends on the context. And for, for the type of planning that I do, which is people between age 50 and 67 that are looking to build money up, take money out, do so in a tax-free, cost-free way, get a death benefit that doubles as long-term care. It tends to work really well for that context. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you saying that because one of the things that we have to do is look <laughs> at the result and then reverse engineer that. And, and it's important, especially when you're using a life insurance contract that's multidimensional to look at all the dimensions because a lot of times, again, we, we say life insurance is not for the rate of return, but that's the thing that we measure everything against. And there's different riders that enhance certain contracts and others. And so I appreciate you 
uh, articulating that. I was just going to say real quick that one of the things that people have to remember is that if, when you read the power of zero and you hand the power of zero out to a client, it's a, it's a really agnostic when it comes to which product you use. Some of the people that buy the, my power of zero, uh, you know, the most are people that sell exclusively whole life. And so as far as the power of zero goes, it's really is agnostic when it comes to which product you use. Yep. Yep. And it's, and the message is really, really important. And I just want to echo the importance of not having all, all your eggs in one basket. I think it's, there's a ton of wisdom in having multiple different streams that are tax diversified because again, we uh, in Wall Street like to focus on diversifying your risk, but we're not diversifying the tax risk, which I think is insane. But then also just not having all your eggs in one basket. I want to talk about buy term and invest the difference. You have a phenomenal video on your YouTube channel about this. And I think you articulate it well when someone says, you know, Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman, you know, some of our other favorite gurus out there, they're saying buy term and invest the difference. <clears throat> How do you address that? Is you ask a question? Do you point something out? Again, I think we can uh, link your video in the description because I think you did a really good job on YouTube. We wanted to give you an, another way to articulate it on the show. Yeah. So when people sort of portray life insurance, permanent life insurance as a ripoff, they, they, particularly Dave Ramsey, they tend to give you the following example. They'll say, hey, if you were to put, say, $10,000 per year into a permanent life insurance policy growing at such and such a rate, you know, after you know, 20 years or 30 years, you'll have, say, a million dollars, just to pick a random number. However, if you were to take that same amount of money and grow it in an index mutual fund or some sort of mutual fund that Dave Ramsey might recommend and get, instead of what you could get in that life insurance policy, maybe you get 8% or 10% over time. Instead of having a million dollars after that time frame, maybe you're going to have a million five or a million seven or what have you. And so then, so they, th that's how they lay it out. And they say, so by choosing that permanent life insurance policy, you just made a $700,000 mistake or a million dollar mistake. And that's really how they quantify it. And it's incredibly misleading because when they do that comparison, there's a couple of different expenses that they don't include on their side of the ledger. They don't, you know, when you say buy term, invest a difference, presumably you are going to actually buy term and, and calculate and include the cost of the term insurance in the calculus. And then investing isn't free. And if you look at the average cost of investing, you know, we're talking 1%. So when you actually, um, figure, you know, you calculate in the cost of the term insurance and how much you're able to um, actually invest, net the cost of the term insurance, and then you actually figure out what the expense ratios are over the life of the investment uh, you know, horizon, then you're not really going to be that much better off. And the second misconception that they have is that life insurance is in competition with a stock market portfolio. It's not in competition with a stock market portfolio. So you say, look, I can get 10%, and you're only going to get 4%. Well, guess what? In a balanced portfolio, what if we were to take that life insurance, replace your bond portfolio? How much further ahead would we be? And, and so when you do an apples to apples comparison, instead of all fruit salad, it tells a completely different story. So there's all sorts of different ways to manipulate the narrative. And people that have an agenda and they have a narrative that they have to uphold, they, they're very, very good at casting this in a, in a very derogatory way. And my job is to simply say, hey, look, Let's be fair. Let's not illustrate fruit salad. Let's do a true apples to apples comparison. And what my video attempted to do was just to simply show the right way to do the comparison. Yeah. And I also like what you're, you're saying. It's not an either or. 
it's very there's a lot of and it's not saying you're anti-market at all it's like right. let, let's let's look at the most effective solution and it's interesting we we say the word retirement which is kind of a swear word around uh better wealth but the idea of, of retirement let's call it what you actually want a future cash flow plan and if we started calling things future cash flow plans and then we started measuring i like i don't you i can't spend a rate of return i don't necessarily care what the rate of return is what cash flow is this going to enhance like give me then we would start making different decisions like across the board. And I think if, if I could do anything or encourage anyone when it comes to planning, it's think with the end in mind. And so you're a big tax person. So you're saying like, let's not just look at the gross number, but let's look at the net number after tax. But can you talk to the distribution planning? Because um, a lot of people, like when we throw out things out like 4% and now people are saying it should be lower than 4%, that's a huge problem, even if taxes never... If taxes lowered or stayed the same, which they're not, but if they did, even even with that, the typical approach is not that effective as it relates to um, having cash flow in, in the future. Yeah, so we're talking about sustainable rates of return then? Yeah, it's sustainable yeah, so, rates so, of return on distribution. Yeah, so this book right here yep. is the sequel to that book right there. So Power Zero is what started it all. And this is the, both, both are through Penguin Random House. So this basically says, this book right here says, we know that tax rates in the future are likely to be dramatically higher than they are today. How do we best insulate ourselves against that? And then this says, okay, how do we avoid the number one risk facing retirees these, these days, which is in survey after survey, they tell you, the, you know, the fear of running out of money before they run out of life. How do you do that? Well, there's two ways to do that historically. One is to simply try to obey what they call the 4% rule, which, you know, was, um, invented uh, back in 1992 by, now I'm going to draw a blank on his name, um, which I quote repeatedly in my, in my book, but he basically said, um, look, if you do Monte Carlo simulations, there, there's really a sustainable amount of money that you can take out of your portfolio year over year without running an unduly high risk of bankrupting yourself before life expectancy. And basically he said, people that take out even 5% per year um, have 50% failure rates. And so he basically said, look, let's take out 4% per year. You get about an 85% um, likelihood of not running out of money before you run out of life. But um, when you utilize annuities, that tells a completely different story. Annuities can help you take out a much higher percentage year over year for um, you know, the same amount of money. And so uh, when people are relying on the 4% rule or what people are now saying today is the 3% rule, it is a very, very expensive way to go about guaranteeing or at least you know, mitigating the risk of running out of money before you run out of life. It's much less expensive to do it by way of an annuity. And, but part of the issue is historically when people do annuities, they stick it in that tax deferred bucket. And so while they're, they're mitigating longevity risk, they're not solving the tax rate risk problem. And so what I talk about in this book right here is how to mitigate tax rate risk and longevity risk in the very same financial plan. And so there's ways to do it and annuities figure very prominently in the calculus. I wanna, I wanna talk about a few things. This has been amazing, by the way. I appreciate how articulate you are. Um, I wanna talk about if you look at the next five years, you look at interest rates going up, which is problematic when you look at our debt because doesn't that increase the debt service? So it's interesting how high the interest rates can go because our country is kind of handcuffing themselves. So that, number one, how is that going to affect? We look at house prices, not that you're giving any advice, but any thoughts on that? And then any other predictions that you want to say in the next year or two, these are some things that I see happening 
um, that are going to affect your bottom line and your wallet? Yeah, so um, we sort of painted ourselves into the corner with the, with the stimulus um, from from COVID. We, you know, you borrow six trillion dollars all in one year, and all of a sudden you've got a lot more money that's swimming around in the economy, a lot more dollars chasing a lot fewer goods. So that's combination of Ukraine, uh, the stimulus spending, and um, the supply chain crisis is driving inflation up. So what you know, what does uh, the Fed do to combat inflation? Well, the, one of the tools they have in their tool belt is to uh, increase interest rates. And any economist will agree that when you increase interest rates, you increase the cost of servicing the national debt, um, which means that as national debt grows, as as interest rates slowly return to historically normal levels, we're gonna find ourselves in a position where the cost of servicing the national debt will consume the entire federal budget, which means there's gonna be nothing left to pay for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, just the cost of running the federal government. They're going to need, they're going to be, need huge infusions of cash. They're going to be looking in all quarters to find more money just to be able to keep themselves afloat. And so we're marching into this future where, you know, what, what are we going to do? Are we going to borrow more money at these high interest rates to be able to, to bridge the gap in our, you know, you know, fill the hole in our in our budget? Or are we going to have to find revenues in new ways? And are we going to have to rise, uh, raise taxes in order to find that revenue? And I think more and more experts are agreeing that we're going to have to raise taxes to be able to solve all these financial issues, which is a problem for people who have accumulated the lion's share of their retirement savings and highly taxable vehicles like 401ks and IRAs, because essentially they've gone into a business, ship with, a business partnership with the IRS where Every year, the IRS gets to vote on what percentage of your profits they get to keep. Not a very good business partnership, if you ask me. And so um, it really is um, problematic. And, um, you know, as interest rates go up, fewer people are going to be buying homes, which means the cost of homes um, are going to start to drop. So there's all sorts of unintended consequences associated with um, our current fiscal trajectory. Yeah, and there's so many follow-up questions, but I think it's, I think... Again, you articulated the <clears throat> unknowns um, well. I guess I guess my question is, if you're 30 years old, because I know that you guys are mainly serving people that are nearing retirement or in retirement, is if you're 30 years old listening to this, what knowing what you know and knowing that you don't know 30 years from now, what advice would you give somebody knowing that where interest rates are at, where the debt's at, where the looming tax taxes could be? Like, what advice would you give a 30 year old that's listening to this and maybe a little bit depressed because it's like, what's the point if it sounds like our government's going to self-sabotage itself? Yeah, so a couple of thoughts. Um, as a general rule, the younger you are, the more inclined you should be to contribute to tax-free. The yeah. farther your investment horizon is in the future, the more likely um, the tax rates are going to be higher for you in retirement than they are right now. Remember, if you're 30 years old, um, you're at a low marginal tax bracket, you put money into your 401k, you're getting a deduction at a low marginal tax bracket only to postpone the payment of that tax till some point much further down the road. And you're going to pay the tax at a much higher rate. I mean, the math just doesn't add up. And so um, the younger you are, the more it makes sense to invest tax-free. Now, if you're rapidly approaching retirement and you say, look, I don't think tax rates are going to go up in the next five years. Fine. You know, you know, I, I, I'm willing to argue to a draw on that one. But if your thirty, if your horizon is thirty years in the future, I don't think there's any question 
that your tax rate is going to be much higher than than it is today. And every single projection, every single math calculation I've seen bears that out. So I think that that um, if you're sitting there saying, hmm, should I get the tax deduction by putting money into my 401k or should I pay the tax today um, and put money into my Roth 401k or my LIRP or what have you so that um, years down the road, I've done all the heavy lifting and I can then take that money out tax-free. I think it's really a no-brainer at this point. Is it fair to say, look for permanent reductions in taxes? So tax planning is very, very important, but don't defer or postpone to an unknown date with an unknown threshold, with an unknown governmental uh, yeah, person in I mean, power. Like it's, it's very risky. Yeah, I yeah. think you put that very well. I mean, there's, you're, you're exposing yourself to a whole bevy of unknowns by postponing the payment of that tax do the heavy lifting today. I give you permission to not enjoy it. Forgo, you know, forego the tax deduction, pay the tax today so that years down the road, you don't have to stress over what your tax rate is going to be. Um, shifting, shifting a little bit, I, I want to know all the things that you've learned. You've, you've really been in this game for 25 years. I know that because I was born in 1996, not to, not to age you at all, but uh, it's, it's one of those things that is, it's incredible. You've, you've committed, you know, what, what is 25 years? It's like a, a fourth of a century into this space. What are some guiding principles that you've learned about life, about communication, about business, about marriage, about parenting? I, I'll let you kind of take this, but like <laughs> you, you've really been in this game for a while. You've learned a lot. You've probably made a lot of mistakes and you've been able to help people like have so much more in retirement and just so much more out of their money. And so it's, it sounds like an incredible, fulfilling life. I just, I guess I want to hear from a personal reasons, like what have you learned and, and how can I avoid some mistakes wanting to make an impact and make a difference in the world as well? Yeah. So let me, let me start by um, just talking about indus the industry, people that are maybe new to the industry. Um, you, you have to find a presentation, a, a marketing path, and you have to get really, really, really good at that path. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, back in you know 2008, 2010, I began a present. You know, I started a presentation. It was my three bucket presentation, and it was only five minutes long. And over the years, I tweaked it and I honed it and revised it. Eventually, expanded to 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 you know an hour. But guess what? I've been doing that some version of that presentation for 15 years. Yeah. I've made a career off of that presentation. I've written a book that sold 350,000 copies based on that presentation. And so I see a lot of people that jump around from program to program and they get sort of good at it, but then they see another shiny object and then they switch. Uh, one of the things, you know, I'm not very flashy. I'm not very, you know, I don't see myself as the most charismatic guy in the world, but what I am good at is, is finding a path and getting really, really good at that path. I mean, I'm probably as good as anybody out there in terms of, finding that path, honing it, refining it, and just getting really, really good at it. Um, so find some aspect of our industry that you're really good at and become the expert. You know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the 10,000 hours. You do the 10,000 hours, you become as good as anyone else in the world. I've probably spent 10,000 hours on that presentation. And now I can go anywhere in the world and write my ticket and you know, um, I can be parachuted into any city in the country and begin giving that presentation and I'll be able to, um, you know, and that's really my meal ticket. And so get really good at something yep. and have the patience and the stick to to get really good at it. And it doesn't happen overnight, but as you put in your 10,000 hours, you'll get really, really good. 
have people come up to me at the end of my presentation. What do I need to do to do what you do, Dave? I say, you need to find a path and you need to stick to it and you need to get really, really good and do it for 10,000 hours and you'll be better at it than anyone else in the world. So I think that's, that, that would be my advice for people in, in the industry. Thank you. Is there, is there any other life advice on communication, business, or anything else that you want to state? <clears throat> um, let me give you uh, just a little bit of advice in terms of pre- presenting. Okay. Um, I found that the way that I present, there's two things that set me apart is how I present. And you heard my, my full presentation with, um, you know, the, um, that presentation you heard me on a, a couple weeks ago. Yep. I am very big on telling stories. And I'm very big on asking questions. And I find that when you tell stories, it keeps people's attention. When you ask questions, it helps them stay involved and keep tracking with you. Let you know as a presenter whether they're tracking with you. If I ask a question to a room full of 100 people and nobody answers, maybe they're not tracking with me. Maybe I need to back up a little bit and explain what I'm talking about. So those two things right there will go a long way. Sometimes we feel like we need to get up there and do this soliloquy and that people are going to be absolutely, you know, um, honing, homing in on everything we're saying, and they're going to love it. Ask questions, tell stories. Those are two attributes of a presentation that will take you a very, very long way. And, and if you look at the greatest commuter of all time, Jesus Christ, he did two, both incredibly well. And regardless of what you believe, you, you, I mean, the Bible <laughs> is the most, you know, sold, you know, sold book out there. And, and he's made a, a difference in how people have thought. And, and a lot of people have dedicated their life to either, e- either that or, or something, a version of that. And it's a lot because of his ability to communicate via stories and ask really powerful questions. Uh, yeah. And I'll give you a quick example there. When I, when I teach a Sunday school class at my church, um, I ask a lot of questions and I have people that come up to me afterwards. They say, they say Dave, that is the best lesson I've ever heard yeah. or one of the best lessons. And, you know, I, I actually talk 20% of the time yep. and they did 80% of the speaking and people want to be heard. And they want to, when we ask questions, we give them the opportunity to be heard and to articulate how they feel about a particular subject. And so just, just remember that, that, that ask a lot of questions and you're going to find out what people think about things. And it's going to really, um, really help you out in your, in your process. I think one of the greatest compliments you can make to someone is ask them a thoughtful question and, mm-hmm. and listen. And that, I mean, that's one of the greatest things that you can do. And um, so it's, it's, thank you. Thank you for articulating that. I know that was a, a question you might not get on, <laughs> on a podcast, especially on, on money. There's a lot more that we could talk about David, but I want to just thank you again for the work that you're doing, the message that you're sharing and the work that you're putting in. Um, the, the way I end all these podcasts is what I call the legacy question. The legacy question goes like this. If this is your last day on earth and you're with the people that you love the most, you can't give them any of your books, you can't give them any of your presentations, you can't give them any podcasts that you've done. You just have that one last conversation. What would you make sure to highlight in that last conversation with your loved ones? Oh, that's a really uh, good question. So if I'm in with, if, if the world is ending tomorrow and I'm with the people that matter most to me in my life and I'm having a conversation, um, well, I, I'm obviously telling them how much I love them. I'm telling them how much they, they mean to me. I'm, and, and I'm trying to impart um, really the most important principles, true, enduring principles that will benefit, not them, you know, benefit them, not just here, but in the hereafter as well. Um, and so, so timeless principles. So that's really the best legacy I can leave to the people that I love is 
really what I've learned. And I think that people who study history are, are not destined to repeat the mistakes that people in the past have made. And so um, that's what I try to do with the advisors that I work with is, look, the, this is, these are the mistakes that I've learned over the years. Let me, burn, let me yeah. bend the learning curve in your favor so you don't make the same mistakes that yeah. I make. A, a smart person learns from their own mistakes. A wise person learns from David's mistakes, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> um, hey, thank you. Thank you so much for for being on. Thank you for just sharing all, all very generously with us. We're going to have your website down below. I would encourage any of my listeners or people watching this, if you've not read The Power of Zero or any of other um, books, which is the last one is, is it, what is it, Safety? And what's your last book that you wrote? Uh, the last book that I wrote was actually this one right here, yeah. Tax-Free Income for Life. I, I wrote one before that called The Volatility Shield, and I've got a new one coming out. It's actually a novel, um, but it's it's got as a subtext, Modern Monetary Theory. It's a thriller. It's called um, The Infinity Code. So that's being shopped out to about 10 different publishers right now. So I'm very excited about that. So if you want a you know, financial principle that's couched in sort of a Dan Brown type novel, then that's amazing. And um, <clears throat> for people who want to subscribe to my YouTube channel, I put out two new YouTube videos per week that talk about this type of stuff. So I'd love a subscribe there, but yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. It's been really great to chat with you. Amazing. And we'll have all that down below. Uh, David, thank you. All right. Thanks, Caleb. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.